This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Barbara Ramirez. We want to remind you that this program broadcasts from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people, unceded Tiwa land. Tonight, we honor Indigenous Peoples Day. We know that the struggle for indigenous liberation continues and Generation Justice stands in solidarity. This evening, we bring you a special edition of Generation Justice about education in New Mexico. Governor Regis Pecos from the Pueblo of Cochiti educates us about the Yazi Martinez lawsuit, the history of education in our state. He shares his vision and updates us on the Yazi Martinez lawsuit. Here's our interviewer, 19-year-old Elisha Cage. This is Elijah Cage with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with the former Honorable Governor Regis Pecos, who is a citizen of the Pueblo Cochiti. He is currently co-director of the Leadership Institute at Santa Fe Indian School, which he co-founded. Governor Pecos, welcome back to Generation Justice. May you please tell us more about yourself? Yes, thank you very much, Elijah. It's a pleasure to be uh, here with you. I was born and raised um, in Cochiti, where I went to a federal boarding day school and then entered the public school in seventh grade and graduated from the Bernalillo Public Schools um, and then went on to do my undergraduate work at Princeton University and my graduate work at UC Berkeley. And I am currently um, a Hauser Leadership Fellow uh, at the Center for Public Leadership and the Indigenous Governance Development Center uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard University. Now, thank you again, Governor, for being here with us. Can you please tell us a little bit about the history of the Yazi Martinez lawsuit? You know, for almost 150 years, um, the indigenous people have been subject to the first Indian education policy that was unveiled in the 1890s that created uh, what are known as the federal boarding schools that spread all across the country. Then in about 1934, uh, federal legislation was passed that gave the opportunity for the federal government to contract with states for the public education of indigenous children. Um, and with that law, it created and forced the integration of indigenous uh, young people into the public school system where today 90% of all indigenous youth across the 22 sovereign nations in New Mexico are enrolled in public schools. 10% of the remaining indigenous children and youth are enrolled in the Bureau of Indian Education Systems, either through grant schools or tribally controlled schools. So around 2014, but well before that, in 2003, the late Honorable Governor Richardson, in collaboration with tribal leaders, passed a historic piece of legislation that created the Indian Education Act 
that articulated from from K through 12 and then uh, on to higher education and uh, lifelong learning in communities as the articulated vision of the education of indigenous children. This was the first of its kind in the United States in a public school system and in, in a public school framework. Several years after that, Governor Richardson with tribal leaders invested state resources to commission one of the first indigenous-led studies about how to improve the education of indigenous children and youth in New Mexico. And one of the most amazing outcomes of that study led by indigenous peoples is if you put that side to side with the findings in this landmark decision now known as Yazi Martinez, it is almost an identical alignment of what was missing and what has been missing uh, in the education of indigenous children and youth in New Mexico. But it has been a long history that scholars have defined that education for the most part, as we know it and as our lived experiences reflect in our lived experiences in, in, in public schools throughout the state and for that fact throughout the country, that Public schools education models are, are really built upon Western education thought and largely for monolingual societies, monocultural societies. And so it really should be no surprise that in a state like ours that today is nearly 80% of all children in public schools, K through 12, come from homes and families and communities that we call blessed with the richness of language and culture. And yet the education model that the state of New Mexico has imposed upon children, that is in a state that is now a minority majority state, are these models that really never made sense to make education relevant where you and I uh, see the reflection of our educational experience with teachers in the classroom that look like you and I, Elijah. Mm -hmm. And so that has always been a major part of, of the concern of parents, of educators, of tribal leaders. And so around two, 2014 was the beginnings of examining what it would take, one, to force the issue about how do we change the education model in public schools that really, one, triggered the litigation as, as an alternative looking at how low education attainment manifest into poverty, how poverty manifests into hunger, how hunger manifests into health disparities, and how health disparities, one, manifest in cycles of violence, 
um, how that manifests ultimately in young people taking their lives where uh, Native youth, um, unfortunately, in New Mexico have the highest rate uh, in the country. And so these issues really culminated in many people, uh, parents on behalf of students, to really um, be bold to raise the issue that maybe it was time for the courts, one, to listen to all of the challenges that have gone um, on, uh, on deaf ears over many, many years that something had to be done with what was now being termed as a crisis in education in New Mexico with all of those statistics, unfortunately putting New Mexico um, in, in, in places that are not the most positive as the country reflected on the quality of education, the success of education, and unfortunately for too many of um, children, especially children of color in a state like ours, uh, were failing miserably of, as glaring statistics reflected um, education failures. And so in 2014, a group of parents um, filed on behalf of their children that was part of the Yazi case. There were another set of parents um, who similarly filed against the state of New Mexico um, from the Martinez family. And in these two cases, over the course of um, the uh, pre-litigation, were combined into one, um, one case that became um, Yazi Martinez. Um, as the case uh, went into the process of litigation. So what really prompted um, parents to, to look at um, how to rectify longstanding failures of education that really, unfortunately, um, is, is a generational dilemma for us in a, a crisis over many generations that has culminated uh, today in, in this uh, landmark case. And with all this information and history that we have on the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit, um, what are the most recent updates regarding the Yazzie Martinez lawsuit and how is it evolving today? You know, thank you very much, Elijah, for that question regarding where are we now on the fifth anniversary. And so one of the things that has been a major part in the discourse over the last five years is that the plaintiffs have really pushed hard since the very um, um, beginning in the aftermath of this landmark decision. There was over 600 pages of findings of facts and conclu conclusions of law. And at that time, Transform Education New Mexico brought together students, parents, educators, experts, uh, leaders from many, many communities together um, to begin looking at aligning um, you know, what were the major areas of priority to address the four categories of students? Children who were defined to be at risk, native students, children who come to school speaking a different language other than English as their first language, and children with special needs. And so those were all aligned into a matrix 
And one of the major requests of the plaintiffs to the state is the only way that we can respond to the magnitude of this crisis is that there has to be a comprehensive plan that really articulated and outlines how the public education department would respond to all of the glaring examples using teacher shortages as one example that today there are still literally hundreds of vacancies across the state um, because we don't have enough teachers because one of the entities who has not taken responsibility in this case are the higher education institutions who produce the very people we need K through 12 in this education crisis. That reality is a result that the leadership hierarchy of higher education institutions New Mexico, in New Mexico have not given priority to provide funding to these various programs to produce what we don't have in this crisis. And so in reflecting upon the last five years, it's been frustrating to plaintiffs that in the course of five years, there have been four secretaries in the public education department. And it's been frustrating because every time we have had the opportunity to meet with secretaries and we feel that we have come to an understanding with regard to prioritizing our responses together collaboratively, um, one, looking at the appropriation request to address those priorities, then change occurs and new people come into place. And we do the same, feeling that we come to an understanding and key people leave and new people come. So it is unfortunately a very unstable situation in the midst of a major landmark decision as we have before us that creates an opportunity to respond um, again to this crisis in education. So there has been these levels of, of frustration largely because five years later we don't have a plan. So for the tribes as an example, immediately in the aftermath of the decision, we were asked by the All Pueblo Council of Governors, we meaning the Leadership Institute, to convene a series of community institutes to bring together, as we did the president, the tribal council, the community at Hickoria, to one, respond to their thoughts and contributions of what should be priorities to address these land, this landmark decision. We did the same with the Mescalero Apache president, tribal council, and community. We did the same with Navajo Nation, their president, their legislative leadership, their department of Diné education, and we convened over 150 people um, on behalf of the 19 Pueblo governors and their communities, educators, one to begin developing out of the findings and the matrix develop what is now called the Tribal Remedy Framework, which is a, a specific response endorsed by all 22 nations that outlines the areas of policy, 
development to guide program development, design of new programs, looking at amendments to statutes where necessary, creating new laws where necessary, and seeking appropriations to respond to these priorities. And so five years later, just two weeks ago, we convened faculty of color and program directors of color from all of the higher education institutions from around the state included and were present the president of Diné College, Dr. Russell, and the president of the Navajo Technical University, Dr. Elmer Guy. And these represent the first uh, tribal colleges and tribal universities in the state of New Mexico, now part of the higher education framework. One of the, the, the findings in that dialogue is, was very clear that these programs that exist within the colleges of education or within the school of social work or in the school of medicine um, or in, in Native American studies um, programs, whether it's here at UNM, at New Mexico State, with ethnic studies, borderland studies, or at Highlands University, or out at Diné College, or NTU, but more predominantly um, here at the University of New Mexico, the largest flagship university in New Mexico. What was a surprise, but should not be a surprise, is that the same kind of discrimination of underfunding is what faculty expressed, has been their experience, many who have been in higher education for 20, for 30 years as their career. But it is a sad reflection, but it is the reality that higher education has never really uh, prioritized programs, and these programs largely exist, not through the vision of the universities, but largely driven so Africana studies, as an example, uh, Chicana studies, Chicano studies, ethnic studies at the University of New Mexico, Native American studies, indigenous studies, is really not the vision of the University of New Mexico. That is the vision of faculty of color who are responding to the non-relevant, similar to the non-relevant curriculum K through 12, and as part of their love and their compassion for language and culture and history that define our identities, faculty of color have been fighting for so long for resources that largely have come from legislative support to create these programs as a way to create relevance for undergraduate students and relevance, if you can imagine, for graduate students. But the same disconnect is a reality in higher education as is a fundamental disconnect, K through 12. So it's no wonder that we are in this situation today um, failing miserably by all of the measurable statistics for a predominantly minority majority um, state. And so following that um, dialogue just two weeks ago, just last week, we, fin we finished two days 
of dialogue with uh, representatives from the Navajo Nation, from the Apache Nations of Hickoria, Muscalero, and the Pueblos, with tribal education department directors, with native language directors and teachers, with early childhood directors and teachers, with education resource center, their, their program directors, their staff, tribal libraries, their staff, to really talk about where we are in funding that has been secured in the last several years to build the capacity at the tribal level to build community-based programs to balance where we otherwise are marginalized, K through 12 in public, public school systems, where in the governance of public schools, we are super, super marginalized with very little representation on local school boards that are elected positions. And given the political power or the lack of political power and engagement, uh, we're not very well recognized in the governance and accountability of public schools. And so that is kind of um, a general reflection with regard to where faculty program directors are at the higher education level and what the thoughts about the remaining continuing challenges at the tribal level um, is expressed with regard to a less than favorable distribution of resources, less than a timely distribution of those resources, and the non-recurring nature of these resources that results in major challenges that are many times disruptive with the way in which the current process dictated by a system that is incompatible or incongruent in the timely nature of these investments of resources to address the major priorities that tribal leaders, uh, education experts have, have outlined as necessary areas investment of investment to address and respond to the findings in this landmark decision. So what we thought at the very beginning when our governor one embraced this landmark decision, but a year later threatened with a petition to dismiss this landmark decision. The frustration continues with the lack of progress um, that otherwise we were all hopeful uh, at the very beginning uh, in the aftermath of this landmark decision. Thank you, Governor Pecos. You know, you mentioned uh, community-based programs. What is it that you want our community to understand about the moment that we are in regarding education? Change takes a long time. If what I shared with you, that for the indigenous children and youth, this is the first opportunity in over 150 years that we have to redefine education for our purposes for the Hispanic community. 50 years ago was the first enactment of a bilingual, multicultural education act. 50 years ago, there was a vision. 
that that's what our children, the children they spoke about 50 years ago, are the children that are now part of Yazi Martinez. That was their vision. But 50 years later, there has not been much in the implementation of that desirable vision where language and culture and history would be a significant part of the population for the African-American community. I don't know of another time that there has been this opportunity, one, to be a part of redefining educational experiences that is extended with the kind of almost invisible representation of teachers and educational leaders. It is the same truth for Asian Pacific Islander communities, that there is very little representation. So for all of us who are the minority majority population in New Mexico, our effort has been to shift the paradigm and rethinking education as as a process of creating opportunities to learn about ourselves, not just in the confines of a classroom, but if we don't have the teachers that look like us, then how is relevance about our history, about our identities, about our language and our culture ever going to be a reality for us, right? And so, the, the shift in the thinking is how do we create community-based education models so that community becomes a part of school and school is extended to the community to really address the way that over many, many generations our people have been conditioned to think that someone else knows best what is good for us and our children. And that rethinking and revisioning today is about restoring that parents are the first teachers, whether you're indigenous, black, Asian, Hispanic, Latinx. That is the truth. And that is what has always been the strength of our families with that kind of love and compassion of being our first teachers of our respective languages and cultures that have never been part of the Western model of education. And so to restore that integrity that they are an important part of our education, community-based education has been a major part or a component in what we believe is how we shift the paradigm so that parents become an important part of a child's education, not to be intimidated by schools that do that to our people. But if we take schools into the community where our people, one, are the strongest in their presence, their children will know how much they care that they have, that they are able to experience the love of learning. What we have been subjected over time is that education is something because parents and community leaders are pushing back, then 
our minds are molded that education is a threat to who we are because none of what defines who we are is ever part of that curriculum. And so in order to restore a balance to valuing education, not just in the classroom, but valuing education with parents who might not speak English, but the most precious gift they give us is our own languages. If parents can't be part of the education that is not provided for us, then creating opportunities where they're part of educating us, our children, in our communities, then it is a an important and valuable contribution on their part. So it's how do we dismantle the kind of supremacy that Western education has created for itself that has no value for our languages, our culture, our history, and yet that's who we are. So education has been weaponized for so long to make it part of an end product that is about assimilating us. And you know what, Elijah, sometimes you know young people in your own lived experiences who really become the discipline problems in school. In my mind and in, in my heart, I really believe that those are the those are the strongest advocates of pushing back of the imposition of education models that are not relevant to us because then they sacrifice themselves by pushing back and resisting that kind of imposition. But they then become discipline problems and then schools push them out. And then when there are no community-based programs, one, to help them restore their dignity, their integrity, their passion for life, then what it does is to create environments that low education and the failure of systems then creates poverty for them. Then they become young parents. Then it creates hunger. Then it creates health disparities. Then it creates what Albuquerque cannot run away from. You know, Malcolm X once was demised for his phrase that, that when President Kennedy was shot, that his phrase of, of the chickens and the hens and, and them coming back to roost was totally misinterpreted. But Malcolm X's point is that is what elders in our communities teach that when we don't pay attention to those who are on the periphery and marginalized, at some point, if we're not careful, one, that they can become over time the majority in a community. And the elders teach us that when that reality becomes part of life, that is when total communities become dysfunctional then it breeds young people with no core values, no value for life. And that is what we're not understanding why the gun violence has escalated so high. No one has taken responsibility that in my experience, in your experience, that the failures of education for our people 
is resulting in all of the circumstances that is creating the kind of violence because it has produced the kind of individuals that has been that have been disconnected from having the kind of values in their life but it is the continuation of protest for what education has done for us or to us the chaos in congress is all about the perpetuation of supremacy that Western education has created. And in my mind, Western education or education in general is really the culprit. Because in the failure of providing truth in education, truth about our history, so that we could learn from our history to be better people, to be better human beings, to have stronger relationships, this kind of violence would not be what it is today that's threatening the peaceful existence of people. And let me just share one other thing. And education can force us out of, out of, out of school. But Elijah, go to any nursing home. Go to any nursing home and see who the caretakers are. And who are, who are they taking care of? They are taking care of people who are largely of Anglo descent. The very people in, in this kind of hierarchy, in the social hierarchy, and in their mobility over their lifetime, they enjoyed their families, are not so connected as ours in our communities. So when the full life cycle comes to a reality and you're blessed with old age, there's no family for them to take care of. There's no family, there's no community for them in the way that we have community. It's our people who are the caretakers across the entire spectrum, largely catering to those who have created systems of inequity and injustice. It's a real irony, and I don't know that many people realize what we are doing to ourselves by one, not being as open-minded in the kind of education that we should be advocating because it's about all of us. My history as an indigenous person is your history. Your mixed heritage is my history. You and I are part of the larger community. But if we don't treat it that way, then we create situations throughout our lifetime that separates us, and there's never, there's never us in the discussion. It's about you, and it's about me, it's about them, it's about us, but it's never about us. It's never about you and I, and that's kind of the unfortunate outcome of what education creates in a way that is epitomized. That is, it is about them and it's about us and who benefits in that scenario. You're listening to Generation Justice, broadcasting on 89.9 KUNM-FM. This evening, we bring you a special edition of Generation Justice. 
Honorable Governor Regis Beckles tells us about the history and updates on the Yazi Martinez lawsuit. Now back to our interviewer, Elijah Cage. You know, it's interesting because I was just talking about this very recently, about the factors in which go into our low percentage education here in New Mexico. And as I had just graduated last year from high school, uh, the most popular opinion was those who were placed to teach us. And, you know, when a student is placed in a classroom, he's expected to know the curriculum. And when they don't, some teachers shun them out. And and yet those students are the ones who are punished because they believe they are not good enough in this world and they those lead to the undisciplined kids that they force out and you talked about a cycle and that's where that cycle starts and there's many factors that go into our low rate education here in New Mexico that's one of them Um, and sometimes it's just funding as well when you look at other states and their funding where it goes to it goes to their education and yet New Mexico doesn't have the funds that other schools have and people ask why is that well our teachers are pushing these undisciplined kids out for not understanding what they were expected to know therefore they those undisciplined kids become homeless or they become young parents, which then lead to those children repeating the same cycle that their parents had made. And you had talked about vision, and I would just like to ask if you would give us a vision on what it would look like to have equitable education for New Mexico youth. Elijah, that was a really beautiful um an eloquent articulation about the realities of the failures of education and who takes the blame in that scenario of failure. It's not the system, it's not the institution, it is the individual that education is intended and why education has always been defined as the great equalizer. And yet scholars in response to this landmark case, have stated that the reason for this crisis in education is because of the long history of systemic and institutional racism. So the question that is the greatest challenge to all of us, as you ask me, what what is my vision? So in our Leadership Institute, we are intentional. We are intentional in answering that very profoundly significant question you just asked. And that is, our intentionality is to create a curriculum that allows our young people, one, to be exposed to the beauty of language, the beauty of culture, the core values that come from 
those indigenous communities to know about the history, to have an appreciation of what generations before us have been subjected to, to appreciate that despite all that they have been subjected to, to kill language and culture and assimilate them over generations, over the course of the last 150 years, that language still survived, that culture still survives, that a way of life still survives, that indigenous governance system still survives. That is a tremendous tribute to the resilience of those people. But if you and them, young people, are never provided that rich history, then how can you appreciate when we ask the question, what do we want future generations to inherit from us? The easy answer is everything that they define that is our inheritance. That in 2023, despite all of those policies and laws sanctioned by government, has not worked. And we're still here proud of who we are, of our language, of our culture, and our values. And so the Summer Policy Academy that is now in its 16th year has put through 350 young people in a curriculum that is a balanced approach to appreciate language and culture and their values that define who they are, to know the history of their lands, to know the history of the sacrifices of their ancestors. But it also focuses to take them to the best schools like Princeton University, to study in the School of Public and International Policy and Affairs, to demonstrate to them that they belong in the best institutions because they're capable of doing well in those institutions. But it is a demonstration that you can be in the most rigorous academic programs, but you need this balance of language and culture and everything that defines who you are so that it is a vision of our elders that you must always give equal value to what defines who we are, as well as developing the skills and the tools with which you young people can contribute to protect everything that is beautiful about us that has taken the sacrifice of generations. And if we were to create education models like that, it is all about how we create a sense of love for young people about who they are, about their language, about their culture. And you know, Elijah, that vision and that model of education for us as a observer and in my testimony to fulfill that vision that affords young people that kind of opportunity of understanding to create a love for learning. We use the word epiphany. Our whole vision is to strike an epiphany for young people. It's how do we strike that epiphany? Because you just demonstrated and epitomized and exemplified 
your articulation in the question that you raise about vision, when you strike that epiphany, it is when education is no longer something you have to do. Education is no longer a task that you hate. Education is no longer a thing where you wake up in the morning and say, I don't want to go to school today. When you strike that epiphany, Elijah, the dream and the vision is that you can create a love for learning. And when you create a love for learning, it is the most joyous part of a human life and experience that you can learn to love learning and then all of a sudden your whole perspective in a conscious way changes about how do you use education and what knowledge you have to contribute to your well-being, to contribute to the well-being of your family, that then contributes to the well-being of entire communities. When we are able to do that for the majority of children, gosh, what a beautiful place New Mexico could be with young people who have that kind of deep love and respect and compassion for one another. And if you ask me, what is the most desirable community you would want to be a part of? It'd be that community, Elijah. And I think you epitomize as a young person um, that can be an example, that can devote your life to that for other young people. So community-based education is an important part for young people like you, who think like you do, who feels like you do, to care like you do, to be able to connect little children in your community where you come from to be a mentor so that young people can say in your interactions with them, they can say to their parents, I want to be like Elijah. I want to be like Elijah because Elijah is smart. Elijah has all this knowledge. And when I grow up, I want to be like Elijah. And so it, it just brings great joy to answer this really profound question that you just asked, because I think in my mind, uh, you epitomize the answer to that question that we all should be striving for to create more Elijahs in this world. Thank you, Governor Pecos. Um, I'm glad that you talk about me like this and you talk about this vision. And speaking of this vision, how can we break this loophole of the history we know because somebody very close to me had told me history repeats itself and if you don't know your history it'll keep repeating itself and what can we do to influence and educate our youth on the history that we haven't been taught how can we use this history of the Yazi Martinez lawsuit as is coming on our fifth anniversary, I believe, and get to this vision that you shared with us today. How do we break the cycle of ignorance? Why I devote or try to make as much time in my own work creating 
our vision, as I described, that education should be. It is organizations like Generation Justice that really creates the opportunity for consciousness building of deepening or heightening our awareness, deepening or heightening our understanding by creating opportunities like radio or journalism or analysis. It's really what enriches the mind, but at the same time deepens the, the, the compassion for us to hear many stories of people's struggles and then you're blessed to know their triumphs, right? And so Generation Justice for me is one of those really blessed opportunities by someone like Roberta Rael who invests so much time to create special opportunities. And it's all about breaking that cycle on all of the multiple points. How do we break the cycle of low education attainment? Well, it's through this intentionality. How do we break the cycle of poverty? It's creating education people so that there's no poverty. How do we break the, 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 the cycle of, of children going hungry at night? It's to, to dismantle the, the shackles that create poverty so that there's no hunger. How do we address disparities uh, and the unhealthy nature of the lives of the majority of our people, right? It's breaking those cycles on all of these points. But the, the, the most important part is really breaking the cycle by doing the things that are necessary to create and nourish the minds and hearts of young people. And Generation Justice is one in my mind that epitomizes uh, the beautiful work and investment that gives young people like yourself um, and the producer of this show, Barbara, uh, to be skilled in areas that in my mind and others would define as non-traditional because we don't have these opportunities. So it's really providing opportunities to explore. And when we do, I bet you never thought that you could be working an interview and asking some really beautifully profound and significant questions. And Barbara over here probably never thought that she could be a producer in a nationally renowned studio that this studio is. So, I mean, God, those speak volumes, but that's what education should be. Thank you, Governor Pecos, for that message. I hope our listeners took what you said into consideration, especially there at the end. Um, where can we learn more about the Yazi Martinez lawsuit, Governor Pecos? There probably are several places. Um, if you go to the website at the New Mexico Center for Law and Poverty, um, there are um, really important documents from a totally legal perspective on this case. If you go to the um, Native American Budget Policy Institute at the University of New Mexico website, all of the um, uh, rich contributions of the tribal remedy framework that I spoke of 
all of the the multiple cases filed against the state that the state has lost that includes um, this case that we have been uh, discussing in this interview but there also is another case for access to technology that the state lost there is also another case that the state lost in in underfunding facilities so that the that the schools and school districts with the highest number of, in this case, indigenous children um, are in dilapidated conditions. Um, so there are, are not, there are several other cases that speak to that. So that you can find there. The other place is Transform Education New Mexico, which is the organization that represents the entire uh, community of plaintiffs for all those four category of students and they have there the case findings of 600 pages the really well done matrix of all the findings all of the policy program um, recommendations legislative recommendations those are all um, archived in those three places that have other links as you search other specific information, but those are probably three of the best sources. Thank you very much, Governor Pecos, for these three sources. Um, where can people find more information about your work, Governor Pecos, and who you are? You know, one of the greatest joys in my life um, is is on my grandson's tablet. He'll he'll always ask me. He said. Uh, so uh, Mumu is short in the Karis language for grandpa. So, so he'll tap me on my arm sometimes and he'll say, hey, Mumu, do you know this? Uh, do, do you know this really beautiful man? And then he'll open his tablet and, and there's my picture, right? So there's no greater joy than having your grandson uh, have that much love that, that in his tablet it's your picture that he has and he's like seven years old right so i asked him i said where did you get that picture and he said um i was in class one day and they let us um one um access uh, our computers and then he said um i googled your name because i wanted to know if um, other people knew that i was your grandson <laughs> so if my grandson um, could find all of the things that his grandpa has done, um, follow his instructions as he gave to me. And he said, just Google uh, Regis Pecos, but you don't have to put grandpa because uh, then all of the pictures will come up and, and all of the things he always, um, he always asked me because sometimes when we go to the grocery store or somewhere, um, inevitably somebody will say hello and or ask, are you uh, Mr. Pecos? Or somebody will say thank you for what you're doing. And so both my grandson and my granddaughter, uh, they're close in age in mm -hmm. elementary school. They'll, al they'll always ask, he said, do you know all the people? Like if you go to the grocery store, do you know all the people? And I said, no, no I don't know all the, the people. And he said, it seems like everywhere we go, all the people know you. So his, his advice is uh, you could Google my name and you can find 
uh, thinks about the things that I've been blessed to do over my lifetime. Um, we're coming to an end. Um, you said some very meaningful things, and I hope that one message that our listeners took from this is community plays a big role in change. And with time, like you said, Governor Pecos, because it takes time for change, um, we will be the improvement that we need. Um, so thank you, Governor Pecos, for being here today. And for Generation Justice, I'm Elijah Cage. Governor Pecos, I want to thank you for all the work that you have done for New Mexico youth through the Santa Fe Indian School Leadership Institute and throughout your whole career. I appreciate you educating us about the Yazi Martinez lawsuit and current updates. Thank you. It's time for Vaccine Equity New Mexico. We want to remind you that there is a new COVID-19 vaccine being administered. Please visit vaccinenm.org and schedule an appointment to get the reformulated COVID-19 vaccine to keep you and your community safe. Again, that is vaccinenm.org. The flu and RSV vaccines are also being administered, so please visit nmhealth.org to learn about these two and other immunizations that you are eligible for. As it gets colder this fall and winter, we have to continue mitigating practices to avoid contracting COVID and any other respiratory illnesses. Wear a KN95 mask, practice social distancing, and if you feel sick, please stay home and get tested for COVID. That is it for our vaccine equity segment. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of education and community. We'd like to thank our guest, Governor Regis Pecos. Tonight's Hour of Radio was produced by Roberta Rael and myself, Barbara Ramirez, with production assistance from Sunandita Santana. And a huge thank you to our interviewer, Elisha Cage. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Con Alma Health Foundation, the New Mexico Department of Health Infectious Disease Bureau through the Better Together program, and Office of School and Adolescent Health, as well as the City of Albuquerque, Race Forward, Media Justice, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. And speaking about donating, in honor of our Executive Director Roberta Rael's birthday, Generation Justice is holding a fundraiser on Facebook. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. I'm Barbara Ramirez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Buenas noches and be safe, New Mexico.